Hey, it's the second week in May, and tulip mania is still in full bloom. You can see pops of color nearly everywhere you look around the region. Are you going to check out Guster at Tulip Fest in Washington Park on Saturday? Do you have Mother's Day plans? It's going to be a big weekend. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. The Supreme Court in another unanimous decision. It's great to see in these divided times, <laughs> the court um, issuing unanimous decisions found that right to control cannot be uh, used to prosecute fraud cases in this fashion. The first week of testimony in the trial of Nauman Hussein in Schoharie County was a heated one. By opening arguments on Monday, two jurors and an alternate had been dismissed and the DA was scolded. And that's only just some of what happened in this high-profile case in the last few days. We'll go over the latest developments. It was mostly people just sort of establishing the fact that Nauman had this limousine business and that he allegedly wasn't following you know, state limo laws up until the crash. And what's up with former NFL superstar Antonio Brown and the Albany Empire Arena football team that he does or does not Oh, We'll talk about it. Who is Antonio El Ola? Say that again. Who is Antonio El Ola? That's a good question. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's discuss now what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines. Now, this was one of those weeks where kind of as soon as we published what I would describe as like a head-turning bit of breaking news, another headline suddenly comes up right behind it saying, hold my beer. So... Truly. Yeah. One of those weeks. Uh, so let's start with something that just broke today. We're talking Thursday, um, and that's a big one for us. The U.S. Supreme Court just handed down a decision that tosses the convictions of Joe Prococo and Elaine Calieros. Tell us all about it. Yeah. El- elements of, of those convictions. In the case of Joe Prococo, uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo's once closest aide and confidant, I, I don't think that's overstating it, they tossed out a corruption charge that was based on what is known as the honest services statute. The honest services statute basically says that in this case, the public is entitled to the honest services uh, of essentially public workers. The argument that Prococo made on this charge, he was convicted of multiple charges, but on this one charge, what he said was, I was not in government. I was not a public servant in uh, those months in 2014 
when I was assisting these uh, developers in securing government favors for them. Therefore, um, I should not be prosecuted under the honest services statute. The court unanimously in this case concluded that that, that was true, that the jury instructions um, on this charge were not accurate and uh, therefore that charge needs to go back to the lower court, which essentially means it's it's tossed. I would find it highly unlikely that federal prosecutors would try to bring this charge again after the Supreme Court decision. Prococo, of course, went to prison, uh, was in for, I think, a little bit less than two years. Then he was released to a halfway house. So he has done time. Now, in the case of Alain Calieros and a number of upstate development executives. This was a related case, once again, brought by former uh, Manhattan federal prosecutor Preet Bharara back before he was fired by former President Trump. Uh, the prosecution there involved basically a pay-to-play scheme, and the prosecution depended upon what is known as the right to control theory. That is the idea that if you or I were serving on the board of a development entity, let's say, such as the one that made this decisions for uh, the Sunni entities that were building nanofab and other high-tech developments across upstate, that we had the the right to the proper and true information to make decisions, such as to uh, sign contracts with developers, for example. Now, uh, the right to control theory, as it is known, is very controversial. And basically, the Supreme Court, in another unanimous decision, it's great to see in these divided times, <laughs> the court um, issuing unanimous decisions found that right to control cannot be uh, used to prosecute fraud cases in this fashion. So uh, the case against Calieros and these these executives appears to be thrown out um, entirely. Once again, you know, return to the lower court, but highly unlikely that it's going to result in a prosecution. Calieros's appeals kept him out of prison for many years or a couple of years after he was convicted. He went in very briefly, but as soon as the court said that um, it was going to hear the appeal, he was released along with these development executives as well. So a remarkable change in circumstance. Yes. And it's very uh, complicated story that we've been covering for many years. So check out timesunion.com for our excellent reporting on it today and then reporting on it in the past for kind of the full full history of it all. Um, let's move on down to Orange County, where a couple dozen asylum seekers have arrived in Newburgh. And this is after many days of confusion. They were coming from New York City. Uh, there are some that have arrived. But can you kind of tell us what is the situation with that ongoing story? Yeah, amid the the migrant surge that is centered on the the southern U.S.-Mexico border, New York City's public services are becoming overwhelmed. Mayor Eric Adams is seeking to find other temporary residences for a number of asylum seekers. Asylum seekers are a subset of the migrants who have crossed the border. These people are documented because they are asylum seekers as opposed to undocumented immigrants. And uh, this has resulted in serious pushback from elected officials, specifically Republican county executives in Orange and Rockland County, who have declared states of emergency that block 
the hotels and motels that might um, house these people from striking uh, those deals. They make the legal argument that these folks are transient and therefore should not be, um, uh, you know, sort of housed even short term in these hotels. What has resulted is uh, the first load of migrants, busload of migrants arrived from New York City about uh, 10.30 in the morning on Thursday. We're talking just a couple of hours later. Lana Bellamy of our Hudson Valley team has been following the kind of media circus, the activists who are collected there, and these folks who have traveled hundreds, thousands of miles um, who now find themselves at the center of this controversy. We should also note that on Tuesday, Governor Kathy Hochul declared a statewide state of emergency related to New York City getting essentially overmatched, overwhelmed. And that state of emergency will allow for the speeding of funds to enhance resources to to assist municipalities in trying to provide services to these people. I'm sure there'll be more to come there. Um, the last thing I want to touch on very, very briefly is uh, where we are with the Schoharie limo trial. Now, you have talked to our reporter, Larry Rulison. He's going to give us an update. But before we launch into that, um, what can you tell us, you know, to prime us for, for that conversation? You know, Larry has been uh, our guy on the Schoharie uh, limo crash since really the days after it occurred. He's a business reporter, but he is he has approached this story in the best tradition of an investigative reporter. And I will also say one thing that Larry and I do not discuss in what folks are about to hear, but this case, this trial, which started off with 12 jurors and four alternates, is down to one alternate. So that means essentially if somebody gets a stomach flu and somebody else is tossed for some other reason, this case is go is going to be a mistrial. This is a, a trial that is supposed to last several weeks, maybe up to six weeks. So I would encourage all the jurors and the one remaining alternate to please take their vitamins and look both ways when they cross the street, because this is obviously a very complex and long-awaited um, undertaking. The judge tossed one of the jurors after the judge said that person showed up at court after smoking marijuana in the morning, which uh, just just to be clear, you're not supposed to do if you're going to be a juror. It is important to uh, to keep your mind as clear as can be. So a fairly remarkable first couple of days of the actual trial, as Larry explains. Exactly. And uh, we're going to jump into that right now. But before we do, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. And we will check back in with you two weeks because we will be taking next week off. Enjoy it, Jess. So, Larry, we're talking at midday on Thursday, and there has been a dramatic testimony just in the last couple of hours. Isn't that right? Yes. Um, the uh, prosecution has started calling witnesses who saw the white Ford excursion stretch limo on the day of the crash, October 6, 2018, and... Um, they called um, a man in, who was with his family behind the limo uh, driving between Fonda and uh, Scary County. And, and they also uh, interviewed a farmer 
who was working on his farm when the, the limo went by him. They had observations. And then the third witness called uh, with that type of testimony was Holly Wood, who is the, she witnessed the crash and she was the one parked at the bottom of the hill, Route 30 and the intersection of Route 30A in front of the Apple Barrel. She was at the intersection when the limousine came down the hill, swerved around her and crashed into the parking lot. We've heard uh, evidence or testimony or statements from her before. She was, I believe, included in the in the federal investigation. And basically, if the limo hadn't swerved around her, she would not be testifying because she would be among the dead almost certainly as well. This is now day four. How would you say the case, the prosecution, which of course we're hearing right now, has been going? It's been going very slow in terms of them trying to explain the laws that govern uh, limit stretch limousines. And a lot of the testimony before today was all DOT inspectors would come in contact with the limo and why they cited the limo, a state trooper who stopped it on Travers Day in Saratoga Springs and, and those uh, types of interactions, several the witnesses and also people who worked with uh, Hussein's, now Hussein, on his limo business or worked at his motel and came into interaction with him. It was mostly people just sort of establishing the fact that Nauman had this limousine business and that he allegedly wasn't following you know, state limo laws up until the crash, uh, starting from when, 2016 when he, when he and his dad purchased the limo from a Albany limo uh, company. Certainly on Wednesday, probably the most dramatic testimony was from a former manager at the Mavis uh, Auto Store in Saratoga Springs who uh, spoke about his interactions with Nauman Hussein and also under questioning from uh, Lee Kindlin, the defense attorney, acknowledged that work that Nauman had ordered on the limo, including on its brakes, had been documented as being done, but had not been done. That was very interesting testimony. Virgil Park was the manager of the Mavis store in Saratoga Springs at the time. It was uh, ripe for the defense for Lee Kinlan to tear apart the manager because uh, he did admit that they had falsified Nauman's bill that day when he had come in and had been requesting brake work. And that they didn't tell Nauman that the work he paid for, some of the work he paid for, they didn't do, including installing a master cylinder, which is, you know, one of the major components of a braking system. And so uh, that keeps coming up now that uh, Lee has established that and shown how the other Mavis employees followed the directions of the manager and doing this and, and doing a false uh, DMV inspection on the the limo, uh, that's given Lee ammunition for throughout the trial. Almost every time he cross-examines another witness that has something to do, some had knowledge of cars, and uh, he, he brings that point back up again, you know. Have you ever paid for, uh, you know, brake work and not gotten it done? It just raises more questions about what was going on at Mavis where uh, Hussein uh, would get the limo serviced. We've heard about the the sort of inspection, the repairs, the 
enforcement efforts uh, such as they were prior to the accident. Today, we're hearing about the accident. This is supposed to be a six-week trial. What do you think the prosecution's case is going to turn to in the days to come? What are we, you know, what are we going to be talking about a week from now? Who are the witnesses going to be? Do you have a sense at this point? I'm, I'm going to assume that they're going to return to first responders who were at the scene and probably people who were coming out of the apple barrel and the aftermath. A week from now, I would expect they'd be past all this and we might be on to the the autopsies and the post-crash and investigation. I feel like it's going faster than I expected, but definitely by next week, they might be past October 6th. 2018 at that point. By October 6, 2018, whatever crime Nauman Hussein is alleged to have committed, he committed it by then. In in other words, that while the, the crime scene is obviously germane, is there more information that we're going oh, to be right. hearing about yeah. Nauman's uh, alleged bad acts before you know? Yeah, I guess I would have expected that before, but yeah, you're right. Since the judge sealed the case, there were there he made a 20-page ruling. He talked about today that about his ruling on what evidence is going to be allowed, and that includes the bad acts. So honestly, I have no idea. Uh, there's a lot of things that have been skipped over that I was anticipating that I haven't happened. It hasn't happened. Maybe it'll happen later, but. Uh, as far as I know, I just don't know what the judge's rule is, is allowed to be talked about. And those, you know, Hussein's alleged bad acts going back were on the table, I know, from a previous uh, public uh, hearing. But it's tough to say. I mean, up until now, most of the uh, witnesses who interacted with uh, Hussein generally said he was a nice person. There hasn't been a lot of uh, testimony that he that he was some brazen criminal. I don't know uh, if that's going to happen. Um, it's tough to say from my point of view. A last question, because I know you have to you have to get back into the courtroom. Have you spoken to any of the families of the of the victims? How did they do you get a sense of how they think it's been going? Yesterday, I talked to one of the family members. It was right after the, the questioning of one of the Mavis witnesses who, you know, was being screamed at by Lee Kimblin, and he just said, you know, I felt like I just got beat up. But I know that they don't like Mavis and up. But, you know, today they, they people were crying uh, with the testimony of Hollywood, that witness who was um, parked at the bottom of the hill when the limo went by. So reality is setting in now that they're going to be hearing soon about the deaths of their children. Larry, really appreciate it. And uh, take it easy. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, yeah. thanks for the good work. Yeah, thanks, Casey. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or on any of our social channels. After the break... Antonio Brown owns the Albany Empire Arena football team. Sort of. It's complicated. We'll discuss. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. 
his disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Some of our highest website traffic and most popular stories in the last few weeks have revolved not around the late state budget, nor the high-profile criminal case that we just discussed, nor even news of the latest local television news personality coming or going from a station. Rather, it had everything to do with the Albany Empire Arena football team and its owner, or not owner, former NFL superstar Antonio Brown. Here's a quick recap before we get into the next segment. The former Super Bowl-winning wide receiver, a.k.a. A.B., was announced as a co-owner of the Albany Empire in March. Now, a little background here, his dad, touchdown Eddie Brown, was a superstar arena player in the 1990s here in Albany when he played for the Firebirds. A.B. spent his second grade year in Latham. So he's kind of a hometown boy, hometown connection. Anyway, since his re-arrival in the Capital Region, A.B. has created no shortage of volatility, shall we say, for the Empire, who is coming off two straight championship wins in the last two years. Times Union sports reporter Abigail Rubel has been following A.B.'s exploits in Albany since March, and I pulled her aside to kind of sort through it all. Let's go back to the beginning. So in late February or early March, the Albany Empire Twitter account put out a video of touchdown Eddie Brown. He was a big deal, right? Like people call yeah. him greatest arena football players. Ever. Absolutely. Yeah, he's in the Arena Football Hall of Fame. He was as good as an, an arena football as his son was in the NFL. I think it's pretty fair to say. So that name pops up on Twitter and all of us are like, what? Right. Antonio Brown retweets it. He's writing, uh, my daddy was, was a legend. Imagine what that makes me. And the Albany Empire responded on Twitter, want to make history. So it started with a tweet. It started with a tweet. You know, and messages flew back forth, back and forth from there. Eventually, former Empire owner Mike Corda gets a call from Antonio Brown. They set up the deal for AB to buy 47.5% of the team. And that's announced in early March. And Antonio Brown is in town. There's a press conference. You attended it. What happens from there? What happens from there is at the press conference, they talked a lot about like family, wanting this to be sort of a fresh start for them. 
Eddie Brown was going to be the vice president of operations. He was going to be involved with the team. So, yeah, I mean, there was generally a feeling of, okay, sure, this maybe this could work. Generally speaking. And then... Yeah, and then the, the first sign, I guess, that I got that things weren't as calm as they seemed was that uh, Coach Tom Manas was let go, like, two days before the season started. Now, Tom Manas, just for folks who don't know, he led that team to some pretty big championships, right, in prior years? Yes. Manas came in in 2021 with just a couple of weeks to build a team after the person who had agreed to be coach left. He won the National Arena League Championship that year, came back last year, won it again, and this year was going to be the three-peat year. Was there a stated reason why he was let go? The stated reason from former Empire co-owner Mike Quarta was that the team was just moving in a different direction. Tom Minas is out. What's next? They start the season with a do- an incredibly dominant win over the Orlando Predators. So far, so good. Just, so far, so good. All of the guys on the team were guys that had been on the team previously, right? Yeah, over half the team was from last year, including some pretty big names. Darius Prince, wide receiver, who won the MVP last year. Sam Castronova, the quarterback. Fan favorite kicker, Mark Orozco. A big, big group of veterans returned. Then meanwhile, what's Antonio Brown been up to? At around this time, Antonio Brown has been saying that he owns 100% of the team. That he's not just the co-owner with Mike Quarta, but that he's, in fact, the sole owner. Mike Quarta says, that's not true. I still own my 47.5%. However, I should not have doubted Antonio Brown because later in the week, Mike Quarta sells his shares to Antonio Brown for a dollar. Antonio jumped the gun a little bit, but as it turned out, he was he became majority owner in short order. However, Charlotte and Steve Von Schiller, a local couple, still own 5%. So Antonio Brown still is not 100% owner of the team. Two days after Mike Quarta sells his shares and I report that Antonio Brown is now the majority owner of the Alpha Empire, I get an email with a letter saying, actually... Antonio Brown is not majority owner. It's this trust. The Antonio L. Allah Express Trust Enterprises. Okay. What to make of this? <laughs> right. Antonio Brown, in addition to saying that he is 100% owner of the team, even though he's 95% owner, has been acting like the owner. It doesn't, there didn't seem to be anyone else with decision-making power over the team. Even if the trust technically owned it, Antonio Brown, for all practical purposes, was acting as the owner. So you receive the email and you respond. I respond and say, Mr. Brown has been acting. You know, he said he's the owner. I'm getting like, I need confirmation. Can you put me in touch with an attorney who else is a trustee of this trust? Like asking for more information to verify that what the letter says. You are being a responsible journalist. That is what we're doing. I'm doing my best. But but I don't get a response from that. During that time, Albany goes on to lose to the San Antonio Gunslingers on the last play of the game. San Ant- with one second left, San Antonio scores a touchdown. Ouch. Tough, tough loss. The kicker, Mark Orozco, left for the CFL, the Canadian Football League. And the kicker that got to replace him, Michael Hall, 
Orozco was a, was an excellent kicker and filling his shoes would have been difficult under any circumstances. Hall definitely struggled in his first game. The next week, they go down to Carolina, lose again by a touchdown. It was less of a good game for them. At the same time that this is happening, there was an incident on the bus. On the team bus on the way back, there's this incident. And there's stuff we still don't know about this incident. But what we do know is that it ended with a fracas in which the kicker, Michael Hall, who again had a not fabulous game, was punched by one of the other players and filed a police report when they got back to Albany. That wasn't a Ted Lasso-style team-building drive back. No. All right, so that's not the only thing that's happening with this team. Obviously, you've got, on one hand, there's kind of this confusion about who owns the team, who's running the team. There was the incident on the bus. And then there's another... Uh, situation where there was some uh, question about whether players were getting paid, right? What what right. was there? Contributing to this incident on the bus was that the players were supposed to get paid Friday and did not. Uh, the team says that this is due to a a mix up with the payroll processor. When uh, when the ownership changed, they had to change stuff on the accounts because my quarter was no longer there, and this resulted in the in the payments being delayed. But the payments have since been been given out right yes although this week it appears i've seen on social media that this week they have had another issue with the payroll processor however antonio red posted a video to his twitter of him personally writing checks and giving them to players that is a nice little segue back to your kind of questions about the ownership of the team who's running the show so as i'm reporting on this bus incident that players haven't been paid, that they suspended the head coach and also eight of their stars because of this incident on the bus. As I'm reporting this Monday, I get a call from the acting president uh, of the Empire, Alberoni Dennis, and he says, I send you that letter that AV doesn't own the team. Can you, you know, you need to put in your reporting that that he doesn't, that it's distressed. Obviously, I, I have more questions. Like, if you're listening on the team, who does? Does anyone else have decision-making control? Who are the other trustees of this trust? So um, many questions. So, so many questions. And what you know so far about the trust is that it's kind of like connected to another trust in Dubai. So Antonio L. Allah Express Trust Enterprise, which is what owns the Albany Empire, is the domestic arm of a different trust, Antonio L. Allah Express Trust. So the trustee of this trust is a foreign citizen, Antonio L. Allah. This is where it gets even more interesting, right? Because you went to a press conference right. and asked Antonio Brown. Who is Antonio L. Allah? Say that again. Who is Antonio L. Allah? That's a good question. Can you answer it? I can't answer that question. I'm here to speak on the empire. But that then leads to another kind of confounding statement that he's making about his himself and where he was born, right? Is that right? So in in the letter that I received saying that Antonio Brown didn't own the team, that it was Antonio Express Trust Enterprise, it starts with 
Antonio Brown claiming that he's a foreign national but not a citizen of the United States. Okay. He was born in Miami, which makes him a citizen. His parents were both U.S. citizens. Uh, they, they send that letter a section of U.S. law that classifies people as nationals but not citizens of the U.S. under certain circumstances, none of which seem to apply to Antonio Brown, given that he was born in Miami to U.S. citizens. Oh, I have so many questions. So many questions. Um, So what does that really mean to you? Like, is he saying that he is Antonio El Ala in like a weird backhanded way? Like, is that what he's suggesting? Can, can we even know? These are all good questions. It is quite confusing. I mean, you're still in the middle of reporting all this. So. And I'm still I'm still in the middle of trying to untangle sort of this this web you know pull uh, unravel this particular sweater of of ownership and they yeah i mean the albany empire themed sweater right <laughs> maybe blue and orange you know the color yeah with, with the shield logo now what about the team as far as the team is concerned the bus incident that we mentioned earlier in this conversation uh resulted in the suspension of several players and one of the coaches right Right. So while the ownership situation is is much more interesting to people outside of the team, the team was mostly concerned with eight top players being suspended along with their head coach. I mean, honestly, I wasn't sure if they would even be able to field a team for the weekend's game. They didn't have a coach. They were missing eight players. Things were sort of really up in the air. Uh, But Tuesday, Manas agrees to come back to the team. I'm back. He said, I don't have any bad blood with the Browns. They, they have treated me well. Especially something like this. Uh, I, over the last 24 or 48 hours, I've been getting asked, why, what would ever possess you to come back and come to a team that let you go? Um, one is the circumstances in which I was terminated probably will never get told until the movie's shot. Um, it's not what you think it was. That's one. My relationship that I've had with the Brown family from day one has always been very amicable and respectful on both sides, and I appreciate that. Keeping arena football in Albany is really important to me. I don't want to see it fail. I, I feel I owe it to the fans who, who loved me so much. So Manas lands in Albany Wednesday. There's a press conference to reintroduce him. That's the same press conference we just mentioned where you inquired about Antonio El Ala. For those of you following this convoluted web of events at home. So Manas has just a few days to put kind of a whole new team together and prepare a lot of these players, most of whom have never played arena football before, to play a game on Saturday. So Manas gets is, agrees to come back Tuesday, arrives Wednesday, there's that press conference. As his first practice Thursday, about two hours of practice with not the full team there. People are still flying in. Wow. Another like two and a half hours of practice on Friday and then they play Saturday. Dare I ask how they did? They actually did pretty well. The team they were playing was 0-3. The matchup was probably about as good as they could have hoped for given the circumstances. It was tied after halftime. The defense made some really good stops. The offense struggled a little bit. The quarterback, uh, Roland Rivers, 
struggled a little bit adjusting to the timing of the arena game. Oh, so but, the quarterback was new to arena football? Right. The quarterback had never played arena football before. Okay, so they lose. But it's a close game. And it's early in the season, so it's still possible that they could have a miraculous comeback. Could they turn it all around and, you know, I don't know, pull out another championship? There are only seven teams, and the top four make the playoffs. Even coming in, you've got a decent shot at it. Well, that's hopeful. That's that's a very hopeful element. Yeah. And Manas said after the game, his his goal for the team is to go eleven and three. They're one and three now. He wants to go eleven and three. There's always drama, right? Like I want to say with every football team and every football season, there might be some element of drama early in the season that irons itself out by the end. I mean, I watched Ted Lasso. I know how that works. But in terms of where we are now with kind of your reporting on this overall situation, like what what's the latest that you can kind of give us? I'm continuing to to dig into this ownership stuff. Obviously, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. As far as the team goes, they have a bye this week, and then they're back on May 20th at their next game. They travel to Jacksonville to okay. face former Albany quarterback Sam Castronova, who has been signed with the Sharks. Ooh, there's some drama there, too, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I look forward to reading the next things that you write about this and that you report about this, and we'll we'll have you back soon. Yeah. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be taking a short break next week, but we'll be back in two with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Larry Rulison, and Abigail Rubel for their contributions to this episode.